previously on The Tax Man. Douglas Bruce was a landlord when he led a taxpayer revolution in Colorado in 1992. He wrote an amendment voted into the state constitution to limit government growth and give more money back to the people. I am a crazy man. (laughs) I'm crazy about my country. I'm crazy enough to believe all those things we were told in school about the consent of the governed, we the people. The measure is called TABOR. It took away politicians' power to raise taxes on their own and put strict limits on what they could spend. It put Colorado at the front of the anti-tax movement in America and made Bruce a hero. But none of that lasted. The government found itself in a crisis. Politicians convinced voters to weaken TABOR. And as for Bruce? He is instrumental, not alone, but instrumental in in passing one of the most consequential amendments in Colorado history. And he ends up descending into a, a, a series of disgraces. From Colorado Public Radio, this is The Tax Man. I'm Rachel Estabrook. In this last episode, how Coloradans learned to live with Tabor and how things got even worse for its author, Douglas Bruce. Bruce's transformation from populist revolutionary to pariah, as he said it, it didn't happen overnight, but it crystallized after he spent a year inside the government he wanted to transform. His colleagues censured him, and he lost his seat in a primary. I was radioactive in certain circles. You know, people say, oh, I hate Doug Bruce. I love Tabor, but I hate Doug Bruce. Because of a constant drumbeat for decades, literally decades, saying that I'm this evil person. He had built up a reputation as the most famous government antagonist in the state. And ever since Tabor passed in the 90s, Bruce predicted that at some point, he'd end up in jail. In his mind, if you fight the government, then eventually the government finds a way to stop you. It turns out he was right. He did go to jail and then state prison. But the public officials who put him there say it has nothing to do with who he is. So this is what happened. It started decades ago with a little book. See, ever since he went to law school, Bruce has carried around an edition of the U.S. Constitution in his shirt pocket, the one he quizzed me with. What are the first five words of the Bill of Rights? Congress shall make no law. It's the basis for his life's work to restrict government. So about 15 years ago, Bruce set up a charity to hand out pocket-sized editions of the U.S. Constitution to every high school senior in Colorado. They were about to become voters. I thought that they should know about their constitutional rights. And when he ran for county office in the early 2000s, Bruce made a pledge to donate his salary to this charity to pay for the constitutions. He followed it through, gave away the money. The problem was, Bruce didn't declare his salary on his tax return. 
I was the uh, attorney general when Doug got in dispute with the Colorado Department of Revenue. John Southers is a Republican. Doug had this unique interpretation of the law uh, where he thought that he didn't have to take his salary and he could just directly donate it to a charity, which happened to be one that he set up. It was a big mistake. The state said, hey, you owe us back taxes on that salary. And they thought there might be more going on. So they did an audit. Well, guess what? Doug had other revenue that he wasn't uh, reporting. And uh, so the Department of Revenue said, okay, you owe us this amount. It wasn't just the county salary. Bruce had made money from a thriving real estate business. And so basically, the Department of Revenue alleged that Bruce had used his charity to hide millions of dollars in income and avoid paying taxes. And since part of that income was coming from the government, it was fairly obvious when he didn't report it to the government. In 2011, the state charged the guy who might be the most famous tax cutter in Colorado history with tax evasion. I ridiculed the government's theory, calling it felony philanthropy. It was all going out to the charity for the charity's purpose, which was telling people about their constitutional rights. I've still got 40,000 copies of pocket constitutions in my garage that uh, I've been interrupted in distributing. One Friday afternoon, Bruce went to the post office in his hometown, Colorado Springs, and as he was leaving, officers came up and arrested him. Bruce talked with a radio reporter in the courthouse on the day of his arraignment. You said they're targeting you. Do you think they're targeting you as an individual? Of course. But but also, do you think they're targeting people like you with your activism? There is nobody like me. What kind of a question is that? Okay, so they're going after me, just as they have in all these other cases that they're piling on in the hopes that I'm just going to sort of crack or implode or something. Uh, because I'm juggling all these times to go to all these court cases, and therefore I won't be able to do anything to enforce the Tabor Amendment or people's constitutional rights, but I did it today in my lunch hour anyway. Seriously, that day, in the middle of the arraignment, he filed a protest to a marijuana tax measure. His commitment to the cause breaks for no one. But he said in the courthouse that day, that's the problem. They would love nothing better than to strip Mr. Petition of his right to petition the government and put me into state prisons. Bruce actually had a chance to stay out of custody, according to Southers. He says normally in these types of cases, the accused would settle with the Department of Revenue, pay a fine, and avoid a conviction. But that's not really Bruce's style. He'd gotten in trouble lots of times since the early 90s for real estate deals, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines for dilapidated properties in Denver and in other cities. He usually fought them. It's shocking. I mean, most people in his position would say, I should hire a lawyer. I should cut a deal. He took completely the opposite approach. Alan Prendergast is a longtime journalist in Denver who wrote about Bruce's legal troubles. He handled a lot of the cases himself. He would hold press conferences and let people know how the city of Denver was behaving badly. He would berate these various minor officials. He, he was really trying to point out the whole system was flawed, and he was the guy to tell you exactly what was wrong with it. Most of the time, it worked to get the fines dismissed. But he also built up a lot of ill will, telling politicians he knew the law better than they did. 
He just couldn't help himself. Douglas Bruce always wanted to make a point. So he fought the tax evasion charge. And this time, it backfired. The jury convicted Bruce. Eventually, he ended up in the Delta Correctional Center in Western Colorado State Prison. Bruce sees this conviction and all the real estate fines over the years as a direct result of his fight for Tabor, a consequence, what happens when you try to take on the government. You know, if you disagree with the government, we're going to send you to prison. That's the message. But it was a jury that made this decision. And John Southers says he and the state handled Bruce's case just like any other, that he's got nothing against the man or the law that he wrote. But the sentencing sidelined Bruce from what was an ongoing battle over Tabor. While the future of the law was being debated, Bruce was in jail, then prison, holding a steel rake, pushing gravel around. The first place he was locked up, he didn't eat much. I would eat hard-boiled eggs because they had a shell. And then I had milk that had half-pint cartons of milk. Then occasionally they would have unopened packages of cookies. Bruce played chess to pass the time. When he could have books, he'd read Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Henry David Thoreau. Bruce felt like he was part of their club of political prisoners. Bruce told us at first that he didn't want to talk about this time in his life. But then he brought it up repeatedly. And you'll want to hear what happened after he got out of prison. That's coming up. But first, being in custody kept him out of the public eye for a while. Meanwhile, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, he wrote, had become ever-present for politicians in Colorado. It touched every little decision that they had to make. And a lot of politicians had started thinking that they had to get creative to get around this law if they had any chance of saving Colorado's roads and schools. We'll be back after a break. There's another great podcast we want to tell you about. It's called Human Nature from Wyoming Public Media. And this one episode in particular will sound familiar to anybody from Colorado. Anybody who's been to Rocky Mountain National Park, you look up at Long's Peak and you just think, I got to climb that thing. Wait, did did you actually look at this recently and think to yourself, I want to climb that thing? Because I've seen it a million times and I've never had that thought. I did. I recently climbed it. I had the same compulsion that the guy in the human nature podcast had he needed to conquer it because he was getting over a friend's death i was hiking for a reason i was going into the mountains for a reason often doing it alone looking you know for solace looking for some sort of comfort i feel like a lot of stories about the outdoors are cliched and This show really gets beyond those. And this particular episode about Long's Peak has quite a twist near the end. Check out the podcast. It's called Human Nature from Wyoming Public Media. This is The Taxman from Colorado Public Radio. I'm Rachel Estbrook. In this third episode, the final episode, 
why so many people in Colorado loathe Tabor today, and why others who love the law say politicians have destroyed Douglas Bruce's creation. Ever since Tabor passed, every government in the state has had a choice to follow it or to try to get around it. At the local level, they've mostly agreed to follow Tabor and let voters decide how much government spends. But at the state level, especially in the past 15 years, they've decided they'll find workarounds. Like, here's an example. Even after the big reform we talked about in the last episode, a lot of people in state government thought there still wasn't nearly enough money to go around because they had a big problem on their hands. The state's roads and bridges were in crisis. The gas tax had funded road repairs in the past, but it hadn't gone up since before Tabor. The problem is massive. It's systemic. It's been building over time. Gas tax was last set more than 17 years ago at 22 cents a gallon. Lawmakers could have asked voters to raise taxes, but they thought it would never pass. It was the depths of the last recession at this point, 2008. And plus, Douglas Bruce had thought of this when he wrote Tabor. He'd specified how politicians have to ask for money. Like, on your ballot, it starts with, shall taxes be increased by millions or billions of dollars? Bruce wanted people to vote no. And they have. Statewide, voters have only agreed to two tax increases since Tabor passed for cigarettes and marijuana. Sin taxes. That's it. So state lawmakers thought, what can we do to get more money for this road problem? We can't raise taxes. So they decided to raise fees instead on car registrations. I asked a Democrat who was then serving her first term in Colorado's House why that felt like the right solution. Lois Court is from Denver, and she co-sponsored the bill. It was easier to get the fees increased than to go to the ballot and ask for it. That's it. It was easier. Where in Tabor does it let you do fees, raise fees without asking voters? Well, it, it's, it's, the, it's the opposite. It doesn't not let us. If this seems like a technicality, it is. Tabor's biggest defenders were outraged. With Douglas Bruce in jail, a group called the Tabor Foundation sued. They said, this is just a tax by another name. But the courts let the new car fees stand. And this workaround has caught on. Politicians have passed fees on everything from parks to business licenses to hospital stays. And those fees come out of Coloradans' wallets. Ask anybody at the DMV. We ran into Laquita Leverett one Friday this fall in Denver when she went to register her new Ford Focus. They cost about $500. Expensive. <laughs> Very expensive. I would be happy with half, if not a fourth, of the cost that we just paid. About $40 of that is because of these vehicle fees that helped politicians get around Tabor. And it's not the only way they've found. A lot of state agencies now call themselves enterprises, so they don't have to abide by Tabor's spending limits. It all drives people like Kevin Lundberg crazy. Uh, Tabor has been under threat ever since it was adopted by the people. He's a state senator from northern Colorado, and he's probably Tabor's strongest defender at the Capitol. I've been down here for 15 years, and I have watched the process again and again and again where the legislature and other political forces have found ways to get around Tabor. But those car fees have raised more than $200 million a year to repair bridges and roads that were in really bad shape. 
And politicians keep doing these workarounds because over the years, it hasn't gotten any easier to go to voters. Just a few months ago, Lois Court, who's now a state senator, implored her colleagues to ask voters to raise taxes. I gotta say I'm beyond frustrated, way beyond frustrated. People, taxes are what we pay to get what we need. And this state needs this bill. Why are we afraid to ask the people of Colorado to make a decision? Put it out there for the people to vote on because that's exactly what Tabor allows for and that's exactly what this bill does. But they didn't put it on the ballot. One senator who voted no said he didn't want voters to have to defend themselves from a tax increase. All this has some people from both parties really worried. Reeves Brown is a Republican. He's been in state and local politics for decades. And he's pretty freaked out about the future. 30 years ago, the most staunch conservative in the, in the, in the state would never have advocated, well, here's, a, here's an idea. Why don't we just quit funding higher ed? Why don't we just stop that? Nobody would have suggested that. And yet that's exactly the trajectory that we're on. It could happen in just a couple years. Colorado could become the first state to stop putting money into colleges and universities. As much as state government has struggled with Tabor, local governments in Colorado have mostly learned to live with it. It's made some more efficient, and when they need more money, they ask for it. Across Colorado, local politicians have asked voters thousands of times to raise their own taxes or let the government spend a little more. Voters in the city of Colorado Springs' April election will decide how much of a refund they want from the city's budget okay. surplus. Commissioners decided to put the tax revenue question on the November ballot. Voters will be asked to allocate $6 million for widening I-25 between Monument and Castle. You decide if the city should keep more than $68 million. The money is supposed to be refunded to taxpayers, but the city wants to keep it to help improve city finances. Some local governments were able to kick free from Tabor's tight limits in perpetuity. That phenomenon got a nickname, by the way. It's called debrucing, as in removing Douglas Bruce from the equation. In these thousands of elections, voters have said yes the vast majority of the time. Even Douglas Bruce voted for a tax increase once, for a local library. He did tell us that after the election, he changed his mind. But still, Coloradans have shown that for the most part, they want the things their local government provides. But it doesn't always work. School districts are increasingly divided into those that pass property tax increases on the ballot and those that don't. One rural district says it's losing teachers to Walmart, where they'll make more money. Not far away in Greeley, Colorado, there's one of the lowest funded school districts in the state. It's called Greeley-Evans. Another district in the same county has twice as much money per student. Superintendent Deirdre Pilch met me at Jackson Elementary School. It was built in the 50s, and when it rains, the principal calls it Jackson Falls because of all the water that seeps in from holes in the roof. We walked into the gym. First graders were running around, throwing balls at the walls and off the wooden floors, and that actually wouldn't be possible in Pilch's other schools. Several of our elementary schools have carpeted gym floors. I had never even seen that. There was a time, I guess, in the 80s when 
late 70s, early 80s, when that was an inexpensive way to complete a gym, to put carpeting on the floor. Pilch says this district has more than $300 million in deferred maintenance. Roofs, buses, HVACs, boilers. She says they all need a makeover. They need security cameras in the high schools, and kids have to get their hands on more up-to-date technology. Then there's the staff. We have currently 12 open bus driver positions, and we cut 16 from last year. So, and we're still down 12 positions. And a, a lot of that is pay. I mean, we Pilch has cut administrators, too. It's still not enough. But as problems have mounted at these schools, voters have repeatedly said no to raising taxes. But Pilch has no choice but to keep asking. My conversation with her was three months ago, and as promised, she went to voters again this fall. The ballot asked, shall taxes be increased by $14 million a year? Remember, that's Bruce's design to give the voter a sticker shock. But this year, for the first time in the district's history, voters said yes. Pilch spoke through tears of joy at the election night party. We believe that we can have more kids ready for the workforce, more kids ready for college, and more kids ready for career. That's what this is about, folks. This is that first step. This is how Tabor is supposed to work. And yet, for Pilch, it really is just a first step. Remember, the district has $300 million in maintenance needs. This $14 million isn't going to fix that. They're still way short of Colorado's average in spending for each student. And that's already lower than most other states. Pilch says they'll have to go back to voters again before long. And yet, for all the hand-wringing about Tabor, the most dire predictions about what would happen if it passed 25 years ago haven't come true. Back in 1992, Tabor's opponents said there'd be chaos. Governments would be so squeezed that Denver wouldn't be able to pay cops. There were worries about how they'd keep the Pope safe on his upcoming visit to the city. Colorado, they said, would be closed for business. But that hasn't happened at all. Looking out at Denver today, the skyline is filled with tower cranes, dozens of them. Colorado has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. 7,000 people a month move here. It's consistently near the top of those lists, like best places to start a business. CPR's Ben Marcus reports on this a lot. And Ben, we've been talking for three episodes now about Tabor as a revolution. As we look at it today, is that true? No. I think 25 years ago, Tabor was certainly a revolution. But part of this story is that if you give politicians 25 years to get around something, then they will. They will find lots of creative ways. And even people who support Tabor admit that today it is a ghost of itself. Douglas Bruce kind of joked with us about this. What do you think the biggest impact of Tabor has been? It temporarily scared the... Uh pants off of uh, crooked politicians. Temporarily. But we know that Tabor is still relevant. The state has a top 10 economy, and it's in the middle or bottom of the pack for money that goes to schools. Despite the fees we talked about, Colorado has some of the worst roads in the country. And the most important provision of Tabor is still there, that voters 
get the final say on all tax increases at the local and the statewide level. And it's not going anywhere. And that's a fundamental shift in what it means to be a democracy. In every other state, they elect representatives who can raise taxes and set budgets, with some restrictions, of course. But in Colorado, we've taken that power away from politicians. It puts a lot of responsibility on voters to know what's going on, even in off-year elections, to understand state budgets in a way that voters in a lot of states aren't asked to do. And there's been a little bit of a backlash to this idea that 25 years ago, at a moment in time, this got put into the state constitution, and some people still aren't happy with it. 25 years ago, the state was willing to make monumental changes through the ballot. And ever since then, we've made it harder to do that. We've passed the single subject rule, which makes it harder to put a bunch of stuff into one vote. Uh, We now have Amendment 71, which increases the threshold for getting a constitutional amendment into the Constitution. You have to have 55% of the popular vote. Uh, Tabor would not have passed in that environment. And so Coloradans have clearly decided that easy changes to the Constitution, which was a progressive thing that was passed into law more than 100 years ago, they finally decided that maybe that's not the best way to do business. But by doing that, by making it harder, they've actually crystallized some of these things that we have added into the Constitution. They're probably not going to go anywhere. But it makes it a lot harder for one person with a passion to get enough votes in any given moment to get it in there in the Constitution. So no more Douglas Bruce's? There will never be another Doug Bruce. After a break, what Douglas Bruce faced when he got out of prison. This is the tax man from Colorado Public Radio. For more news and music from Colorado, check out this other podcast. It's called Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. I work on it with the host, Ryan Warner. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Ryan. So every day on Colorado Matters, we tell stories and introduce characters from around the state. That's right. Characters you might know, like Governor John Hickenlooper, and characters perhaps you don't. I think of the student staff of a newspaper in Grand Junction. They had a lot of suicides at their high school. Yeah, and the surrounding ones. That's right. And the question was, how did student journalists at a high school deeply affected by suicide cover that story on their campus? Wow. When many of the reporters knew the victims. It was very hard to write because you had to be very careful about what you would write and how it would come off to other students who were like his family members and his best friends. Oh, my goodness. And what did they tell you? Like, what got them through it? I think it was the sense that they were helping, disseminating information that might help prevent future suicides. And I imagine they were giving other students a way to talk about the suicides. That's right. There was even a hashtag started, what adults should know, uh, so that kids could be communicating with school leaders. Fresh angles on Colorado News every day on Colorado Matters. Subscribe now. In July 2016, Douglas Bruce went to the parole board to ask to be let out of prison. My name is Alfredo Peña, member of the Colorado State Board of Parole, conducting video interviews of offenders who are appearing. He asks what Bruce plans to do if he gets parole. 
Bruce says he'll go back to his home of 30 years. He'll pick his real estate business back up. And then he says, I accept responsibility for all my actions. I deeply regret them. It will never happen again. All I was doing was... He said, I accept responsibility for all my actions. I deeply regret them. It will never happen again. Those are true statements. That doesn't mean that I did anything wrong. Doesn't so what mean do you regret? I regret the fact that they sent me to prison. Any intelligent person would regret that. So I said something in a way that sounds like contrition, but it isn't contrition. Obviously, I regret they're stealing six months out of my life to put me in a hole somewhere. It, it was disgusting. It wasn't depressing because I rose above it mentally, okay? Because I knew I did nothing wrong. And I was going to have to spend my life when I got back out climbing out of this hole that these evil, corrupt people had put me in. Mr. Bruce, uh, I read your statement. I've heard your statements. I've reviewed your file. You're doing well. I feel very good about the fact that we will never see you again. That concludes this hearing. Good luck to you, sir. The parole board was respectful, but Bruce sounded frustrated to be in that position asking for freedom. It, it strikes me that this is obviously the biggest legal battle that you've been through here, but there are there have been many. Do you ever get tired of it? Like do you Of course I get tired you, of it. Why? I, I would like What's what's here in Colorado that keeps you here fighting I'm this not going to run away. I'm not going to let them win. Okay? I did nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. But does it get tiring to fight it? I am exasperated, but it actually is, uh, I'm not sure it's the right word, rejuvenating. It, it's, it's telling me I'm on the right side. It's telling me I'm getting to them. Just like every other setback, going to prison hasn't stopped Douglas Bruce. But the stage has changed. He doesn't show up at the state capitol much anymore. He mostly stays around Colorado Springs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the uh, regular meeting of Colorado Springs City Council for Tuesday, January 24th. Today, he's the agitated guy at the city council meeting, waiting for his turn to speak to rows of chairs that are mostly empty. My name is Douglas Bruce. I've lived here for over 30 years. And what this council did with one dissenting vote Last April 20th was probably the most flagrant violation of law that I've seen in my 30 years here, and that's saying something. A flagrant violation of Tabor. He handed out copies of the law to every council member in size 32 font. Any time his home city talks about something related to Tabor these days, you can bet Bruce will be there. And this is Bruce in his element prodding the people in power, reminding them what they're doing wrong, and defending Tabor with every last breath. That's not the only battle Bruce is fighting right now, though. He wants to get his tax evasion conviction vacated based on a number of things. He says his constitutional rights were violated that he didn't get a fair jury or a speedy trial, that he couldn't subpoena witnesses, particularly some from the IRS who didn't find any problems with his charity, Bruce says. 
But it's too late, really, to save his reputation. That book's been written. No, getting the conviction vacated is about making a point. And it's about getting back something even more important than friends or money or popularity. I was deprived of my right to vote. So I had a perfect voting record since age 21 when I was back at that time first eligible to register to vote. Perfect voting record for 46 years. As a felon on parole, he can't vote now. The guy who wrote a new Bill of Rights in hopes of expanding people's individual freedom. The guy who tried to make it even easier for voters to make laws. And he doesn't get to participate. Thanks for listening to The Taxman from Colorado Public Radio. The Taxman is produced and reported by Ben Marcus, Nathaniel Minor, and me, Rachel Estbrook. It's edited by Robert Smith. Ramtin Arablui created the music. Fact-checking by Jennifer Karchmer. Thanks to Kelly Griffin and everyone at Colorado Public Radio who supported this podcast. And thanks to the NPR Story Lab for its support. Also, to the dozens of people we talked to over the past year about Tabor, thanks for helping it make sense as much as possible. Subscribe to CPR's Colorado Matters podcast for more news and music from around the state. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.